I'm TC Mill, and I'm an erotica writer, um, all sorts of genres. I started with MM and paranormal, and have kind of spread into literary, um, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> um, as well as being a writer, though, I'm also an editor, um, including I've edited The New Smut Project, which is a micropress that releases anthologies of literary short erotic fiction with my co-editor Alex Freeman. And I also work as a freelance copy editor, so uh, I'm very nitpicky about my words. <laughs> and Bettina and I have been uh, beta readers for each other and sort of pen pals for the past year or so. And after some phone calls, we decided maybe we could make a podcast together. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm Bettina Seifer. Um, I write erotica primarily. I'm focused on femdom. I like kink. Mm-hmm. Um, I also write a lot of LL stuff. Um, and uh, the cougar cub dynamic is something that pops up a lot in my work. Um, I, I come to erotica actually from the fiction tradition, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, TC and I gravitated to each other was because we both had a sort of a similar rigorous approach to um, the literary aspect of writing good erotica. And so that was one of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast in the first place was to talk about craft. Mm-hmm. So I guess the way I see it, and you can let me know how you see it too, there's a couple of different things all under point of view. Like first, there's the decision first person, second person, third person. And then we also talked about how tense is involved in that yeah. um, past, present, future. But then there's also the choice when you're doing POV who your POV character is and whether you're going to be limited in their head or more omniscient. And it really depends on the story that you want to tell there. And I think that something that I see a lot is that I think that authors just sort of immediately immerse themselves in that story or in that environment and they don't really draw back for a moment and ask themselves that question, well, what's actually the most effective, efficient way for me to tell this particular story? So I, I think that's something we kind of want to talk about. Like, what are yeah. the determiners there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when you write a story, do you decide point of view first? Like, do you sort of make a formal decision or do you start writing and see what happens or is it a combination? Yeah, I, I would say that I don't have any one, you know, formula, but mm-hmm. I for sure do have a sort of a checklist in my mind that I kind oh, of go, yeah. go down a little bit. Like, you know, it, 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 I had one story that popped up. It was a femdom story, and I told it, I started to tell it um, from third person, and I told it all the way through in third person, but then it occurred to me after the fact that the, the, the more like fascinating aspect of that story was actually through the submissive's point of view. And so mm-hmm. I went back, I didn't exactly tell the same story, but I kind of recapped that story in her mind, the way that she experienced it. And I think it was much more potent that way. Oh yeah. That's the thing too, where you can sometimes tell the same story both ways and, right. then, and then figure out from there what you want to stick with. Right. Right. Exactly. But for example, something that I think that is really effective, and this works into how POV works with tense too, Mm -hmm. 
is that a lot of times in our fantasies, when we're fantasizing with somebody, we're drawing a scenario for them. And so in that particular case, I find that um, second person where you're addressing the you is really, really effective because we know it's a fantasy. I'm making mm -hmm. this whole, uh, all of this is made up for you. And it puts the reader in this almost, um, they're sort of receiving a set of directives or something like that. Yeah, that can give second person sort of a punch of immediacy. And yeah. I've, I've even seen some readers react to that even negatively saying like, I find it uncomfortable for this person to be talking as if I were their lover when I'm not their lover. <laughs> so um, that could that's be- interesting. Well, that, that could those, also be a thing. That, and that sounds like a fear of intimacy to me. <laughs> it depends. I can feel like there are certain um, dynamics that I wouldn't necessarily want to find myself drawn into. Sure. Um, but in that case, I, I think it could still be interesting to read a second person story from that point of view, because the fact is the second person isn't you, the reader. They are a separate character. They're just a character you're being put into their shoes with a lot more force than you usually get right and it also by saying you you are you are still creating a, a narrative voice behind that yeah which is cool that is a really cool little sort of mirroring thing that happens for me pov only really works in present tense or future tense possibly um because if you think about it when you're saying oh, you did this to me, and then I did that to you. Why does that make sense if that person actually experienced, you know, why, what is the yeah. point of rehashing it? In it's a words? little as you know, Bob. Yes. <laughs> as you know, Bob, our mother <laughs> gave birth to our twin sisters and died tragically in childbed right. three years ago. Exactly. <laughs> that kind of a narrative device that just sounds so, so tacky. Yeah, it's so false. It's ex dialogue and exposition like that just comes across as so flat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. That's kind of interesting. Now that you mentioned because I haven't seen a lot of second person stories in past tense, and I think you've diagnosed why. Right. But on the other hand, people will sometimes do first person in past tense, even when that doesn't make sense. Like I've seen editorial guidelines, especially in science fiction genres and stuff, where they're like, no first person tense if the narrator dies at the end, because then how do we know how they narrated this? <laughs> well, I don't know if that comes up quite so much in erotica, but even so, the idea that you sort of need a frame for yeah. your point of view if you're doing first or second person. Yeah. While yeah, it's... Definitely, because it doesn't make sense. I and then I die. Uh -huh. <laughs> While if it's I third expire. person, we don't demand that level of realistic framing. I guess we're just like, okay, we're just eavesdropping telepathically on this person's right. inner thoughts, and that's cool. Yeah, yeah. What was that word that you used the other day when we were talking about it? That um, that device. Well, that for TV. head hopping, right? For head hopping. Yeah, we were talking about jumping around. Yes, the there's the rule that there's no head hopping. You can't go from like his point of view to her point of view within right. a paragraph. Right. Um, and I said it might be just a shibboleth that uh -huh. is sort of like a a passcode or a unspoken rule of behavior that people in the in crowd know and people in the out crowd don't. Right. And I think I've seen some smart people describe it as like a term made up by workshops for workshops, like authors who are workshopping their work will tell each other this as a bit of feedback 
but readers and writers outside that bubble don't necessarily care so much. Um, I have mixed feelings on that because I actually really do like a limited third-person point of view. There are cases where omniscient will work better, but I think there are also a lot of cases where if you're omniscient, you slip into this sort of flat tone where we're not really inhabiting the characters and we're kind of being spoon-fed information because it's really easy to just slip into anyone's head if you wanted to give backstory. It, yeah. Yeah, and, well, I have a couple of problems with it because, mm -hmm. and I, I think especially when you're like writing erotica, and I think this goes doubly true for when you're writing kink erotica that has to do a little bit with power exchange. And oh, yeah. to, in my mind, I'm withholding purposefully some information from that reader because I want, even if I'm do, using the omniscient, I want them, I want that perspective to be limited to one character so that there's something to discover. You're discovering things through that character and you're kind of peeling those layers off slowly. In other words, if you if you use that omniscient and you just freely jump back and forth between all of these people's perspectives, mm -hmm. um, then it's not really clear where the arc is. And, yeah. and, you're, and you're kind of heaping almost too much, in my mind, too much information on the reader. Like there's nothing for them to discover. It's the sense yeah, of there's... discovery of this person moving through this, you know, experience. You know, it's a reveal. It's a slow yeah, it reveal. It takes away an aspect of tension, I think. And yeah. not necessarily a bad... It's not necessarily conflict. Because you might not know what your partner is thinking, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're about to get in an argument or something with them. But it is a source of tension and curiosity. And I think that's something which we have in real life intimacy. Yes. Um, even when you know your partner very well, you're not going to have exact insight into what they're thinking at any given moment. So. Right it almost rings false for a story to be able to do that. Yeah, and you know, I'm gonna use one of your stories that you used in the, that you uh, have in the Getting It collection. Yep. Um, because both of those stories actually kind of have to do with negotiation. And if mm -hmm. you knew what both of those characters were thinking in that situation, th there'd be nothing to, to learn. There's, yeah. There's, there's no sense of discovery there. And so watching one of them really deeply process what's going on and the other one kind of giving little signs, Ooh, maybe, I, I don't know, like <laughs> being a little bit purposefully um, sort of ponderous with it. Like oh, yeah. that, that's a really interesting way to, to build a story um, because ultimately what all of those body parts you know, meshing are there for is, uh, it's just another metaphor for communicating. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just feel like you sort of muddy the waters when you have too many POVs in a story. That said, I think there are some exceptions. For example, if you're writing something longer form and you're yeah. really, really careful to cut back and forth, maybe distinguishing like, a whole section or a whole chapter dedicated oh, yeah. to another person's POV. That can be very effective. 
because mm-hmm. then you're kind of creating a little bit of irony between those two POVs. Oh gosh, yes. That that can that can work, but I think for the most part, what I see a lot of uh, out there in terms of head hopping is no clear decision being made. Yes. And so they just kind of slide to whatever. And I feel like the author picks the easiest possible way of delivering information. Right. Like, I want to show that she's lying to him. So immediately after she says something, we slip into her head and go, she was lying to him. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be a lot more effective to just have maybe he notices she's a little shifty. And then in a couple scenes later, suddenly we're like, oh my gosh, she was lying when she said that. Exactly. Exactly. You have pull to... the reader in. Yes. So, you know, I think you and I both come from a literary background that uh, really emphasizes show, not tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. and I almost sink into that almost on a poetic level there is like, how many sense details can I draw out there? How much body language, how do I combine that, that sort of, you know, palette of options together to say something about that character that the character maybe necessarily wouldn't say about themselves. Yes. You know, um, that is critical to me when you're trying to create an erotic dynamic between two people. I, I feel like, um, again, if you do all of this revealing about them, then by the time that they get down to getting down you I don't know it, it it doesn't feel like much of a finale at that point <laughs> yeah that sort of ties in especially to this anthology's theme of getting it because your story yeah. for it too um you're pretty much confining your character's point of view and we're sort of learning in his case what pain means to him and how it can be helpful as yeah. well as harmful right and a lot of that depends on being really deep into his head, even before he fully realizes the scale of right. what's going on for him. Um, like, if we just sat back and diagnosed everything that was going on for him in a flat couple of paragraphs and then got onto the sex, it would be really, well, it would come up kind of boring because right. everything's being spoon-fed to us and there's no dramatic tension. Yes, yes. And also again going back to that limited pov Mm -hmm. it compounds the tension for him that he does not know what she's thinking yes he does not understand fully understand her motives her behavior is um alien to him um but he's fascinated Mm -hmm. and so yeah again that's a place where like um less is more you know think that there's a way to kind of dial it back and Mm -hmm. increase the space for the reader's mind to kind of fill in. When you write a character like that, like your Dom in Cutting, Mm -hmm. when you're not fully giving away everything she's thinking, do you as the writer know what she's thinking all the time or do you kind of watch her play out and just describe what she does? Um... I, I for sure know more than he does. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard to know less. Yeah. Um, I will sometimes origin story mm-hmm. for um, those secondary characters so that it's clear in my mind um, 
where their actions sort of derive from. And so, for example, she does some things with him where she's like, you know, and they're young. I should point that out. These two characters yeah. are very young. Um, she won't let him touch her. And he's baffled by this. He's like, this is, you know, we're teenagers. <laughs> we're supposed to, <laughs> this is how it goes. I'm, I kiss you. And then I, you know, I put my hand on your shirt. It goes like this. And um, so I need, I needed to have a reason for to draw up those boundaries, her boundaries so fiercely. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I let her kind of be an enigma to, to me as I was writing it too, because um, again, I'm, I'm deeply identifying with him. The story is being told through, through his eyes. And so it helped me um, sort of identify deeper with his um, sort of incredulity with her. You know, mm -hmm. um, do you do that? Do you do you sort of fully flesh them out beyond what's actually taking place in the scene, or it turns out less and less as I go on because I found it it's actually kind of fun for me to leave some of the mystery. Yeah. Um, like generally, when I'm writing from a submissive's point of view, I still kind of sympathize with the Dom more just because of my own power orientation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I, I understand what she's getting out of it more than I necessarily understand what the submissive is getting out of it. Right. But when it comes to like their backstory or their motivation, I'll sometimes hint that like something sad or unpleasant happened in a character's past without getting into it. And part of that is maybe not to bring down the tone of the story with too much angst, but some of it is also that I just don't want to pin down whatever's going on in their past. So if someone sets a boundary like, um, my character in Fantasies won't talk about her first marriage. Uh -huh, I don't actually right. know what, I don't know what happened at the first marriage. <laughs> right. The reader, the reader probably has ideas, I have ideas, and if she doesn't want to talk about it, we won't talk about it. Right. So, um, yeah, in, in a sense, I guess it's showing how to respect the character's boundaries, too, that we don't need to know everything about this fictional person, just as we don't need to know everything about the real-life people we meet. Right. Um, and I, I mean, it, it, it's a cliche to say it, but it is really true that, um, they, they do sort of take on a life of their own mm -hmm. and that it's funny as writers that we're like, Oh, okay. She's a dom. So we're definitely not going to cross certain lines, but I mean, it's, it's interesting that even as the writer, you are sort of respecting the character's limits. It makes sense, but it's, mm -hmm. it's also funny. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's fun yeah. sometimes. It is fun. And they, and they do just develop into uh, their own, you know, they do sort of like grow dimensions over time. Like that, that um, other short story, the LL, where um, she's sort of putting her submissive through all of these different tests. And when I first started writing her, she was a little bit flat. She was, she was just bossy, and it was kind of hard mm -hmm. to see why the submissive was so adoring of her. Um, and then, you know, by the time I wrote four or five or six scenes with the same character, 
you know, I, I, I'm just as dedicated to her now as the submissive. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you want to say about that, about editing when it comes to POV? Well, there was one thing which we sort of hit on earlier that seemed to relate to editing to me, which is sometimes you write a story from one point of view and then you rewrite it from the other point of view. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of use editing and rewriting. They're not the same thing, but there's a lot of similarities. So sometimes mm -hmm. when you're editing something, you are rewriting. Sometimes when you're rewriting, you are correcting. Um, so it sounds like it would be a time-consuming method to rewrite every story you wrote in a different point of view. But oh, yeah. do you think it could be useful sometimes or at least a useful thought experiment? Maybe a way to like proof test the point of view you selected. If you sit down and go, should I rewrite the story in a different way? Yeah. If you're the kind of writer that uses an outline yep. in order to establish, you know, the, the sort of major plot points and characters and stuff like that, then you can really quickly mock up the story. Even if you don't have to do it on paper, you can kind of do it in your mind. Well, what is it? Does it make sense for her to tell the story or for him to tell the story? Is this something that happened already or is it happening right now? You oh, know? Yeah. Um, and where is it taking place? Do I, is it, is it the kind of thing where there is a, um, a sort of a real deliberate setup that the, that the place is part of the story, almost like a character in the story, or is that, not so important because I think that feeds in too to who's telling who's best equipped to tell the story in that setting. Mm, yes. You know? Um, so, uh, you know, it, there's a, a lot of possibilities there, but I do know that I hate, um, I hate that feeling of getting all the way to the end of something and realizing I did not, think this through oh gosh yeah <laughs> i occasionally had to completely rewrite stories and with different yeah. pronouns or different points of view and stuff right. and it can be it's can be tedious because um, yeah i practice it's the zeroth draft my outlines are really super detailed are they um, wow yeah they, they come out in like they're not paragraphs because I my grammar's awful in the first draft. I don't um, believe you. Let's <laughs> do lots of sentence fragments, and then from that I build the story. So the zeroth draft, okay. I don't have a point of view character decided on. I'll just be like, this character does this, this character does that, this character yeah. does not like that, um, and sort of details of their reactions and actions that way. And then I sit down and uh, my zeroth draft is almost always in present tense just because that works naturally when I'm just jotting down ideas. Then I sit down and have to decide who's going to narrate this, how are they going to narrate, am I going to keep this in present tense or am I going to change it to past? Right. Right. And that, so that's the, when I do make formal decisions about point of view. Um, I think my story in a Women's Best Erotica of the Year, Volume 2, Phone Call, 3 a.m., yeah. it's uh, it's second person, although it's also first person because it's a first person narrator talking to a second person. Right, yes. Um, well, that's a great example, actually. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I do remember consciously making the decision to use second person at one point there. Mm -hmm. um, it was very I mean, effective. It was, yeah, for, it, it for really reason, communicated so fully the relationship there without any of the usual tropes of of developing a, a dynamic 
In other words, that, that was what I thought was really unique and skillful about that story. One of the things was that um, the, it was very poetically communicated, that just that moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very effective. It would not have been the strong story that it was if you hadn't have chosen to, to tell it in that way, I think. Yeah, because when I think about how I write third person stuff, I love writing third person too, but I don't know how it would have worked in that case. Um, I always intended the narrator to do first person, partially because I didn't decide their gender and I wanted to leave that a blank slate. Speaking yeah. of um, not identifying everything about your characters, it was more interesting to me to kind of leave that to interpretation. Yeah. Um, so then I couldn't do third person for them because mm -hmm. I didn't want to pick a pronoun. And then for some reason, calling the uh, heroine of the story, who's called you in the final version, mm -hmm. she, so it was like for the narrator's talking about my girlfriend comes into the room and stuff like that didn't seem right to me. Right. As you said, the level of intimacy just isn't good enough. And I didn't want to tell from the heroine's first person point of view because honestly, her thoughts are almost too messy to put on paper, I think. Right. Um, because of, the subject of the story so it almost shook out that second person was the only viable option and remind me is that in present tense or is it in past tense because that also would be another another exception to that rule right i could run and check i suspect mm. it's in present tense and given the immediacy with which i wrote it when i'm writing with that style mm -hmm. of immediacy i usually default to present tense me too um so yeah, if it was past, I'd be very surprised at myself. But it would have worked in that context. I think it might have, yeah, especially because um, you can almost see why someone would narrate that to their partner. Like it, it might well be yeah. um, instead of phone call three a.m. It's a conversation seven a.m. over coffee. What the <laughs> fuck happened last night? Well, right, right. This is what happened last night. Yeah. Um, and yeah, kind of intimately reaffirming that surreal experience, it could work in past tense for that. Right, right. It, it, in that particular case, it was um, the, the description of it was unique. Like, I really, you go so through something with somebody and it, that mm -hmm. was an intense moment. Um, you sometimes do feel like you have to go back and say, I need you to know what was going on inside of my head when that happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so reliving it. Right, right. We may have found a viable use right. for a <laughs> second person past, past tense. tense. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Actually, though, you're right. Um, I do have a story idea I'm floating around that parts of it, not all of it, consist of one character writing letters to the other and at least some of this is probably going to be second person past tense with a you should know what actually happened in the room back there why i reacted the way i did things like that um so yeah letters and sort of an epistolary style i think can do second person past tense if they're revisiting an event to right. explain it or reinterpret it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or if it happened a long time ago yes or even to like I'm not sure you even remember this, but... Right. And that can be a important character dynamic. Yeah. Just as long as you don't go overboard with... Yeah. You know, with the details, like... As long as it feels like an authentic retelling. Yes. Is what, how I would qualify that. 
So, and then I, I, I wanted to talk about POV um, in terms of, of editing too, because yes. you mentioned something when you're editing somebody else's work mm-hmm. that um, sometimes, for example, somebody has edited your work and, and pinged you on something that, that they thought counted as head hopping that felt yeah. like even a little bit extreme. Can, can you give me some examples of that and talk about that a little bit? Okay. Um, in general, I think, and I'm not the only person to do this, but um, when you're writing erotica and you have people with that close level of intimacy, they might assume what the other person is feeling and it might just flow completely authentically in that limited point of view, but to someone else, it sounds like they're head hopping. Yeah. Um, I think my semi-facetious joke is like he looked over at his lover Tom and saw the ecstasy on his face, and someone would be like, "How do you know Tom was ecstatic, head hopping?" And it's like, "Well, he's in the middle of an orgasm. Yeah. We can probably <laughs> assume." Right. Um, we can safely say that he's ecstatic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nearly the definition. <laughs> um, and yeah, this happens in smaller, large ways, I think, in a lot of different scenes. And since you, you don't want to go overboard um, saying Tom found his orgasm sexy, like, sometimes right. it's obvious enough that it doesn't need to be stated, but um, sometimes it just flows naturally in the point of view for characters to empathize with each other in that way. And I think people can get a little too persnickety keeping from head hopping to the point, especially if it's like just a line, like I'm not moving permanently into Tom's head. I'm just describing his expression or something. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that you were one of the people who were really um, able to zero in on that for, for me when I, we started having these conversations and you edited in um, some (laughs) of my work, I went back and looked at a lot of my earliest stories and realized, oh, I was doing that all the time. <laughs> um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm much more careful about it. But I think there also is a way that um, we can supply sort of empathetic details about somebody that doesn't yeah. cross into that line. So I think that's important to point out too. You don't have to be, um, you know, you don't have to be a Spartan about it. Yeah. Also, like if it's a habit or something. Right. When I was looking at how I tend to pick my own characters, who I'm going to be narrating from the POV of, um, the principle I seem to follow is who's wearing the blindfold in the scene. <laughs> not, not always literally. That said, I've never actually written a blindfold character from someone else's point of view, so I'll have to try oh. that sometime. Um, but I guess... It, Whoever is more in the dark, has more to uncover, knows less. That's the character I seem to gravitate towards. Ah, Um, that's interesting. Maybe because I like writing the process of discovery so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe maybe because obviously when you're wearing the blindfold, there's that element of anticipation that's super fun to capture. Right, right. feel like I've, I've definitely written a couple of stories from the perspective of the submissive that's been blindfolded or <laughs> shackled uh-huh. or what have you. But um, I, I think like you, I also just identify with the, with the dominant um, exerting that power of taking the sense away. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I feel like I've done both in that particular case, but that's a really good rule of thumb, you know, sort of who, who's, um, who's really set out to, um, to learn, learn something from it. Um, that's really interesting. So should we do a little plug for the book? Oh yeah, we can mention those. So we've both mentioned stories that we have in the Getting It anthology. That's a new release from Sincere Publications. And that comes out, what, September 15th. It's yeah. already available for pre-order on Amazon. And I should actually be posting the links to that up on my website soon. And TC has two stories in that anthology yes. and I have one and there are 13 altogether and there are 13 what, altogether what is awesome about this collection is that it is a, a femdom collection but it also had this theme of um, sort of BDSM as a healing agent mm -hmm. and so that um, that idea that we're playing with in our stories about discovering you know the idea of getting it is more than just getting booty <laughs> Hey folks, you can talk to both of us at our websites. You can find TC at tc-mill.com and I am at BettinaCypherErotica.com. Feel free to send us a message and let us know what you want us to talk about on our next podcast. Thanks so much for listening.